0: The cry of our heart is, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Well, today is a bittersweet day. Uh, it is the end of our "Don't Quit" series. So we've been teaching through the book of First Thessalonians now for about eight weeks, and so we've kind of come to the closing message. And I, I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope it's challenged you. I Hope it's encouraged you. I hope it's convicted you. All those things. I pray importantly uh, that it's been profitable uh, in your spiritual life. And so uh, this is the first time I've taught all the way through First Thessalonians. I've taught passages before, but it's just been so encouraging and a rich time for me just studying through it uh, each and every single week. So so one final time, if you have your Bibles, turn to First Thessalonians chapter five this morning for the final message in our Don't Quit series title. Don't quit. There's work to do. There's work to do and in the light of the Lord's soon appearing. May we be found faithful and fruitful when he does come. And so there's work to do uh, If you have been with us the last several weeks. We've been in this series now uh, for about eight weeks and we've uh, recognizing that Paul basically was encouraging a group of new Christians. He'd won some people to Christ on a missionary journey uh, so he, he traveled back around. And so he got word they were getting discouraged. They lived in an incredibly immoral culture. They lived in an incredibly pagan environment. And so many times uh, we say this, we say, oh, things are so much worse in our culture. And and uh, I just wish we could go back to the, to the early church and listen, uh, when we study their culture and understand everything about it contextually, their culture was worse than ours. It was worse than ours. And so uh, in our culture, if we could just fast forward these principles, we live in a culture uh, that seems to be tolerant of everything except biblical Christianity. And so we could take these principles that were being preached 2,000 years ago and just kind of fast forward them into our culture. We'd say, oh, it's the same thing as living out the truth of God's word, even in our culture. So let me just give you a quick uh, recap. We've covered the first seven messages. We said, don't quit. Uh, Someone is watching. And your perseverance has an impact on those who are watching you walk through a tribe. We learned that in chapter one. Uh, we said don't quit because God can use you. You may not recognize your giftedness or how God has wired you up or even think you can make a difference. But we learned in chapter two we should never quit because God can use us. Don't quit when life is hard, chapter three. Uh, don't quit in the battle for purity, chapter four. Don't quit because Jesus is coming, uh, chapter four as well. And then don't quit because there's work to do and that's where we find ourselves In chapter five, and so part two of the message we started last week in verses 12 uh, through 22. And so Paul had just taught them in chapter four, hey, Jesus is coming back. One day, the trump of God of sound, the archangel will cry out. Jesus will descend with a shout, reveal himself. And so uh, Paul says in chapter four, he taught that in chapter five, verses one four, he said, now you're no longer ignorant. I've told you it's coming back. I've described for you what this looks like. Apparently they had some questions. That's why they wrote. And then he says as a result of that, because you're no longer ignorant, your life should be different. You should be sons of light and daughters of light in chapter five, verses five through 11. And then answer the question like I get that. I know that when Jesus appears, I want to be faithful. I want him to be pleased at where I'm at spiritually. But, but what does that look like? I'm no longer ignorant, 4 and 5. I should be living different, verses 5 through 11. But what does that look like practically? Verses 12 through 22. And so that's what we're going to walk through this morning. Uh, in Verses 12 through 22, where Paul just kind of basically is wrapping up the conversation. So he just gives like... 15, 16, rapid-fire, bulleted kind of commands and say, listen, by the way, don't forget this and do this and don't do this and be this and those kind of things. And so that's what we're going to look at practical, practical this morning. So, uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. He says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you, Lord, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the fainthearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And so we covered that last week and he said, hey, listen, uh, in light of the Lord's coming, you should honor your spiritual leaders uh, because as they get discouraged in the face of persecution, those following them can get discouraged and they can quit as well. And then he says you should be coming alongside of each other. Uh, verses thirteen through fifteen, he says, "Listen, you should be straightening out the cantankerous. That's what the Greek really could kind of say there. You should be upholding the weak. You should be comforting people because persecution takes an effect on different people." Okay, and then he goes on this part too. This is where it gets really bulleted. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench or grieve the spirit. In some of your translations, do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. One of the phrases we often say, and we we say this in church many times, and you've heard this, you've probably heard me say this, you've heard other people talk about this, is this idea of living with an eternal perspective. And we throw that word around, but in mean, so many times people take that and they distort it in such a way that it, it was never intended. Sometimes people just kind of live this uh, detached from earth and its concerns. And yes, I'm in the culture, but I'm not engaging the culture. And, and uh, they're just kind of, you know, those folks who are just oblivious to what's going on around them. And so they just say, well, I'm just trying not to, I'm living with a, my eyes on heaven. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can get so unbalanced on that, that we begin to get categorized by those folks as that we would say this. Is that they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Yeah. And so the scripture doesn't cause to live that way. Scripture calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to look for his appearing. All right. But it also calls us to be wise around unbelievers. It calls us to engage our culture as missionaries. And so that's not really what scripture is talking about with this idea of living with an eternal perspective. And so what exactly does it mean? Here's my understanding of what that truth means. What it means is this, is that there will come a day when you and I stand before Jesus Christ and give an evaluation of our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat. It's a place where rewards are given. I'll offer up my life as a work of service. And those things I invested in that were not uh, eternal, uh, they'll be consumed on that altar. Those things that were eternal, the investments I made that were eternal or honoring God, those things will be brought forth as pure gold and precious stones and all those things. And whatever's left out of that time evaluation will determine the level of reward. And I'll do those rewards. I'll give them back at the feet of Jesus in an act of worship. And so what does all that have to do with living in eternal perspective? Because here's what it means. It means that every effort of my life, every action, every attitude, every relationship is living in light of the truth of that day. That everything that comes out of my mouth that every uh, decision I make is living in life that one day I'll stand before Jesus Christ and my life will be evaluated. That's what it looks like to live with an eternal perspective. All right. And so what's it got to do with our text? Because basically what he's walking through here is a bulleted list. He said, hey, listen, here are some things. That if you're living with an eternal perspective, here are some things in light of the Lord's soon appearing that should characterize the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to walk through this. And so basically, uh, we've kind of titled this whole series, Don't Quit. It was about perseverance in, in, in the face of persecution and being steadfast and standing firm and all these kinds of things. And so I'm going to wrap up this last message in this series of six habits of those who are preparing for the Lord's return. You're no longer ignorant. Jesus is coming back. Live differently. Here's what that looks like. And so uh, I'm just going to, these also could be called six habits of those who live with a truly eternal perspective. And so now, let me just give you a little context before we walk through this list. I believe that when you look at Scripture that every sentence structure matters. I believe that context matters. I believe the tense of the words and the verbs even matter in getting the right interpretation. So that's called literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. All right? You're welcome. So, what's I got to do? Every one of these commands is given in a present imperative. You say, thanks for the English lesson. Who cares? Listen, they're given in a present imperative. An imperative in Scripture is a command. You know the difference between commands and non-commands in Scriptures? One you pray about, the other you don't. Commands, you, you don't pray about commands. We do that all the time, do we not? Jesus said, you know, uh, be baptized. I'm praying about that. Jesus said, you know, be generous. I'm praying about that. Jesus said, forgive those who persecute you. You know, I'm praying about that. Those you don't pray about commands, you just surrender to them. All right. So these are imperatives. These are commands. These are not options. These are things we should be doing to live with the eternal perspective. Our lives should be characterized, but it's a present imperative. So what does that mean? What that means is this. These are continuous actions. These are not things you cross off and go, I did that one time. Yeah, I remember back there I did that or Jesus said that. So I did. Listen, he's saying these are continuous commands. In other words, my life, your life should be characterized habitually by these six things. All right. So that's what we're going to walk through this morning. And uh, we're never given an exemption because of circumstance or discouragement or difficult people. And so he just said, hey, these are some things you should never quit doing as a follower of Jesus Christ in the light of his return. The first one is simply this. Don't quit rejoicing. Don't quit. We've been talking about don't quit for eight weeks. And so I'm going to give you six things you should never quit on in light of the Lord soon appearing. And the first thing he says here is simply this is don't quit rejoicing. Now, we just got to be honest this morning. We live in the real world. Real hurts. Real sin. Real consequences, real trials, real disappointments. And so this command almost seems impossible. But let me remind you in Scripture consistently that when God gives a command, He never gives a command that He also does not resource us in such a way that we can obey. And so so many times we come across the commands of Scripture and I've sat across from people, uh, you know, in my office in a one-on-one environment or in a smaller group and pouring into people or counseling or whatever the case is. And some people just kind of say, well, here's what God says about that. And they look across me and they say, I can't. said, listen, are you a believer? Yes. Well, then the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And so when the Spirit of God lives inside of me, when it comes to a command, there is no such thing as I can't. A more honest and biblically accurate answer is I won't. I want to. That's hard. That hurts. That takes me to a place that I've shut down. I won't. And so he says, Listen, don't quit rejoicing. And you say, I can't. No, no, no. Biblically, I won't. That's what he's describing. God never gives a command without resourcing us, resourcing us in such a way that we can obey that thing. And so when we're looking at this passage, though, we look at, this, look at verse 16. what he said? Just very simply, rejoice always. Rejoice always. And I've taught this so many times, so I'm going to walk through this a little briefly. Uh, Joy is not happiness. It has nothing to do with my circumstances. I'm happy or sad based upon my circumstances. I got the raise. They said that. You know, they checked the box, you know, just whatever the case is. Whatever it looks like, I'm totally a slave in happiness to my circumstances. But joy is independent of circumstances. Joy has nothing to do with my circumstances. Joy has everything to do with the confidence of my God who allowed that circumstance to happen. Joy has everything to do with no matter how difficult it is that I really live out and believe at the core of my being. I reckon it so that everything works together for good to those who are called to love God or called according to His purpose. That I actually believe that to the point that I live out of that truth. And so no matter what's going on around me, joy is inside of me. And so sometimes joy is inside of me, and guess what? I'm not happy on the outside. But he says, don't quit rejoicing. Well, how do you do that when life is hard and full of disappointments? Joy means recognizing that God is always there, and God always has a purpose for my pain. God always has a purpose for my pain. God never wastes a hurt. We do, but God never, ever wastes a hurt. And before you had a problem, God had a plan, and the plan is to sustain you and give you a testimony of His grace that was sufficient in your time of weakness. Many years ago I had Rick Warren say this. I wish I'd have said it, but that's why he's Rick Warren. I'm not. Rick Warren said this. He said, your greatest potential for ministry, your greatest potential for ministry directly intersects with the greatest place of pain in your life. Your greatest potential for ministry directly intersects with the greatest place of pain in your life. And so I rejoice not because I'm happy about what's going on. I rejoice because even through this, God sustained me, showed himself faithful. His grace was sufficient and God can use it for his glory on the other side. He says, rejoice always. Don't quit rejoicing is the command of continuous things. Verse 16. Second command he gives it, don't quit. Don't quit rejoicing. Secondly, don't quit praying. Don't quit praying. Those who live in joyful dependence on God will realize that it takes God's power It takes God working inside of me to do that. And when I realize that I need God's power, guess what? It drives me to prayer saying, God, I know you said rejoice always, but life is hard and it's difficult and it's painful. And the only way I can do that, God, is for the Spirit of God to control me. And the only way that happens is spending time with the Father. You know what the psalmist said? The psalmist said this. He said in the presence of God, not doing the work of God, not witnessing for God, not giving to God. Listen, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And so he says, verse 17, what's he say there? 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, if you've heard me teach, uh, you know this. I don't like philosophical abstract arguments. Like, my least favorite class in seminary was Philosophy 201. And listen, I'm just telling you this it drew some of the weirdest birds you've ever seen in your life, all right? They just get in and say, what if God, you know, what if this? And what if I'm just like, who cares, right? And just all these abstract, you know, listen, you know what I like? I like practical. Here's what I like. Tell me what the text says, even if I don't like it. Tell me what it really says and then tell me what it looks like to live out that truth. That's what I want. I don't want philosophy or abstract. Listen, tell me what that looks like. And so when I came across this command this week, here's the natural question I have. How do you do that? Like, how, how do you pray without ceasing? I mean, how does that happen when I'm in a continuous state? How is that even practical, right? Should I be talking to someone else the whole time, and carrying a conversation on with God and, and I'm distracted? And if I don't do that, then I'm, you know, listen, if you're sitting here and you're listening to me and you're not praying, are you sinning? Right. And listen, when, I just assume that when I see with your eyes closed that you're praying. I don't know what the mouth open part is. I don't know if you're offering utterances. I don't know what that part is or the drool. Maybe that's a fragrance. I don't know. Listen, I don't know. But I'm just assuming, though, they're praying without ceasing, right? And so, let me, let me tell you what the Bible teaches about prayer. I want to this super practical. The Bible talks about and describes and illustrates two facets of prayer. One is what I would call retreating prayer. Now, well, that is not backpedaling. That is not, you know, oh God, help, help. You know, th- th- Listen, retreating prayer is those times of retreating or getting away, isolating myself from the distractions of my life, whatever those may be. All right. And I'm just this is this is when the Bible talks about that Jesus often went to the mountaintop to spend time with the father. And if Jesus had to draw away for periods and I know how busy you are and I promise you, you don't have any more responsibility than Jesus had. OK. And so if Jesus had to retreat often to the mountaintop with the father, then guess what? There should be times of retreating to get along with God. And, and I know that's hard. Listen, uh, we've got four kids in our house. And so it, it's hard to find that quiet place and, and, and just some of your lives it's just difficult to have. to listen, there should be times where I'm carving those things out. And I've heard people give testimony. They had a special chair. Like this is Andy Stanley. I heard him teaching on this. He said my dad growing up, uh, Charles Stanley, he said we had a chair in our house and uh, anytime that someone was sitting in that chair, you just kept walking. You didn't talk to them because you knew they were spending time. That was their place. That's where they retreated. Alright? And so there are those times. But also in Scripture, there's this constant conversation that goes on between God and I. There's times of retreating, but then there's also times of what we would call conversational prayer, where every opportunity, every relationship, every division, every place where there's friction, everything, I'm just constantly talking to God about that. God, give me wisdom in this circumstance. God, help me to forgive when I don't want to. God, help me to honor. Help me to be bold and speak up when I'm being persecuted in my workplace or in my school or those kinds of things. That's just that conversation with God all throughout the day. That's what praying without ceasing is. Now, I've just got to be honest, personal testimony. I'm a lot better at conversational prayer than I am at retreating prayer. And I'm just being totally transparent. Uh, I'm trying to discipline myself and grow in this the same as you are. Uh, I find that in retreating prayer, oftentimes I'm a checklist person, right? Like God's greatest gift outside of Jesus was the checklist. I believe that with all my heart. And so when I'm trying to carve those times of retreating, it's hard for me to shut my mind down and not think about all the things I could be getting done. It's hard for my mind not to wander. And so the greatest growth and what's helped me grow my prayer life is grasping this idea of conversational prayer. Listen, some of those are incredibly short. Right? It's just this conversation with God just going on over and over in my life. And so that's how you pray without ceasing. It's living with an attitude of prayer that every circumstance is an opportunity to seek God's wisdom so that he may get glory. That's what he's talking about there. Several years ago, Christian Day did a, uh, a list. They posted a list of 50 books ever written that have shaped evangelical Christians. Now, this was not the 50 bestsellers. Uh, this was not the 50 uh, greatest literary works from a writing perspective. These were the 50 top books that have actually shaped or changed the way that we live out our faith. So, so to me, that's the most important list if you're going to make a list. And so here's what they said. They said the top book, all these books written hundreds of years. Number one book on that list was a book that I had never heard of in my life. And I've read a lot. OK, would never heard of this number one book on that list was a book written in 1987. Uh, maybe the only good thing that came out of the 80s, by the way, okay? 1987 by an author that most people have never heard of named Rosalind Rinker. Anyone you ever heard of Rosalind Rinker? Yeah, me, me neither. And Rosalind Rinker wrote a book that was called the number one book that shaped evangelical Christians called Conversing with God. And the whole subject of that book was how to grow and how to develop and what conversational Prayer looks like she was the first person who put legs under the idea of praying without ceasing in a written work that was concise and practical. And what happened, it changed prayer from this formality, and these cliches and, and you know, these thous and, and all these kind of things. And you know, at a point in time in prayer meetings in the life of the church, people would, you know, they would do, they'd get up and read written uh, speeches about prayer. And she was the first person to say, no, that's not what that looks like. And there were some other books, Brother Monk wrote a book many years ago, but that's the idea I'm just in a constant conversation with God. God, how can I speak for your glory? God, how can I honor you? How can I do all these things? And so Paul says, don't quit rejoicing. Don't quit praying. What else does he say? Don't quit thanking. Verse 18, what's it say? In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many of you at one point in time have ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Have you ever walked through that struggle? Like, I don't know, you know, those guys. Listen. There's multi-facets of that. Let me give you one of the facets. Verse 18. You say, how do you know that? Because I can read. In everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so one of the will of God for my life, one of the things I have to pray about, one of the things I have to wonder about, is this idea of living with gratitude. You know what gratitude is? Gratitude is a tangible expression of the grace of God. Gratitude is living in such a way that says I don't have everything I want. If I'm just being honest, maybe even some things I don't need to listen to. God has been so gracious to me. God has been generous to me. And so I'm going to live in a spirit of Thanksgiving. Listen, Thanksgiving is not a holiday. It's a lifestyle. That's what the Bible teaches. And so he said, this is the will of God. Verse 18, in everything, give thanks. Now, let me just pause here for a minute. Before we move on. Let me just address a common mistake in dealing with this command. I've I've seen people do this over and over because here's a fair question. There are some painful things in life that we live through and with that's the overflow of someone else's sin. Thank God for that. Some things in our life are the result of spiritual warfare being waged against us by the enemy. You think? You thank God for that, Pastor. Someone walks in your office and says, "I've been listen. I've been given a terminal diagnosis." You, you thank God for that. Give, give thanks for all things, right? No, no. Listen. One of the reasons we break down verse by verse and sometimes word by word when it comes to interpreting Scripture is because every word matters, even the tense of the word. And so the verse actually says, doesn't say, "Give thanks for all things." It says, "Give thanks in all things or in all circumstances." Look at verse 6. He wants to say. In everything, not for everything, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I don't, I've never in my life thanked God for cancer. I've never had someone walk into my office and say, here's my diagnosis. Say, I thank God for that. I've never in my life as a pastor thanked God for the results of sin and cancer is a result of living in a fallen world. But I can thank God that God has allowed that trial into my life. I can thank God in advance because I know that if I remain under that trial, God will use it for his glory and will change me and will draw me to himself through that pain. And at the end of the day, even if it's not something I'm thankful for, I can be thankful in because at the end of the day, even if the consequence or the results or whatever the process was painful at the end of the day, if the final destination is the foot of the cross, then guess what? That's a good journey. And it may have not been fun. I may have not been happy. It may have been hard. But if the end of the journey leads me to the cross in a place of greater dependence, that was a good journey, even if I wouldn't have chosen. One of my favorite biblical illustrations of this principle is Joseph and his brothers that sold him into slavery. I could read that story over and over and over in Genesis chapter 50. Some of you know the story, some of you don't. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. He was the favorite son. I know what that's like. They sold him into, into slavery. And so they just kind of written him off, they came back and, and his dad's like, what happened? Like, oh, he just you know, got killed, just eaten, whatever. And so years later, Joseph goes into Egypt, he goes, there's a slave. They recognize his promise, his potential, God's favor in his life, he eventually gets promoted to the second in command there in Egypt. And there comes a famine back home. His brothers hadn't seen him in years. And so the father says, Hey, listen, we're going to starve to death. You need to go to Egypt because they've got grain in Egypt and just go there and tell them we have need and they'll disperse that. And so they get there and they, they go before, and they, they, what they recognize is they come before, and the person who's in oversight of that is Joseph. And they stand before him, trembling with fear. Oh, it's all these years. All the bitterness that's built up, all the anger that's still there. He's, he's powerful. He's going to kill us. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. Think of that. I'm in the very place God wanted me to be all along. And yes, I'm not thankful for how I got there. Listen, at no point in time he said, Hey guys, it was really awesome. Remember when he threw me in that pit and sold me in slavery? That was awesome. Thank God for that. He said, no, no, I'm not thanking God for what happened because it was terrible. But through all of that, even when I couldn't see it, what's he say? I'm in God's place. And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them wasn't thankful for what happened. wasn't thanking God for those things they sinned against Him. But he's thanking God in the circumstance God was still honored through that process. I don't thank God for the cancer. But give thanks that in my time of sickness God used this trial to cause me to value every relationship more deeply. I don't thank God for my spouse having an affair, but I thank God that in the time of healing, I truly learned what it means to forgive like God has forgiven me. I don't thank God for the loss of my job, but I thank God that through that, I finally learned the lesson that He alone is my provider. I don't thank God for my child sinning against me, but I thank God in the time of dealing with him, I understand more deeply what unconditional love looks like. So I don't thank God for all things, but I thank God in all things, for all things, work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so he said, listen, don't ever quit thanking. And you may not see it. And you may not know how it all turns out. But if you just remain under that, then guess what? You'll say just like Joseph did. Hey, don't worry. I'm in the place God has for me. Don't quit obeying. Verse 19, what's it say? Do not quench the Spirit. Some of your translations say, do not grieve the Spirit. The word quench there in the original language means to extinguish, to stifle, to slow the progress down. There's so much confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Spirit of God, there's nothing you will ever do if the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. There's nothing you'll ever do that causes the Spirit of God to leave once you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. In times in Scripture we read where the Spirit of God came upon people and it left them in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But once that Jesus ascended, the Spirit came down and dwelt the hearts of men. Listen, there's nothing you can do where the Spirit of God will ever leave. Your heart is a home. It's not a hotel, alright? The Spirit of God is checking in and out. The Spirit of God lives inside of me. And so what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit now? What's it doing? Listen, it comforts. Scripture talks about the Spirit comforting. It talks about the Spirit of God teaching us or, or making us understand Scripture. It's called illumination. The Spirit of God uh, convicts me of sin. The Spirit of God empowers me to do things that I would not do in my own flesh and my own strength. And so when he talks about grieving the Spirit of God or quenching the Spirit of God, listen, when I understand Scripture, the only thing that can grieve or quench or slow down or stifle the progress of the Spirit of God inside of me is sin. And it's no one else's sin. It's only my sin. That when I come to that place of sin, that it grieves the spirit of God and I no longer tap into the power of God and no longer can feel his presence, even though he dwells inside of me. Several weeks ago, I'm going to share a story. Uh, Tasha shared a story with me, and it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. So uh, several weeks ago, Tasha had an exchange with someone. They just they basically what they said is this. They said, you know what? Um, I just don't feel God's presence in my life. And and so just, you know, are you a believer and tell us about that and give us your testimony. I'm an absolute believer and hear you know, all those kind of things. They said, well, I, I just but I don't I don't feel God's presence in my life. I don't feel like he's there, even though I know he's supposed to be there. I know you know, all, all, all those things. And so Tasha will tell me what's going on. In life. And so this person just laid out this this story. And Tasha said this, she said, hey, look what I wrote and tell me what you think. I said, well, it's usually better to ask someone's opinion before you hit sin, and not after the fact, but. But I, and so here, here's what Tasha said. told her story and Tasha said this. He said, hey, listen, the reason you're not feeling God's presence is because you're living with someone else's husband. You know what that's called? That's called grieving or quenching the spirit of God. I said, preach it, sister. I said, Tasha, that was truth spoken love. I don't know if I would have put booyah at the end of that email, but listen... He says, don't quit grieving the spirit. What grieves the spirit of God? What stifles its progress and its power in life? It's sin. Fifth thing he says, don't quit this. Don't quit listening. Don't quit listening. Verse 12, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise it. Do not hold it in contempt when someone proclaims the word of God. That's what he's describing there. Prophetic utterances can either uh, spoken words or written words. And listen, the gift of prophecy and the apostolic time when God was giving new revelation, the church didn't have the word of God. Listen, God was giving new truth and they were speaking that truth. And there were some people that rejected that, that held the word of God in contempt. They just, you know, push back on. I, listen, I don't care if it's a message from God. I don't like the content of what you're saying. And so they would be guilty of what verse 20 talks about despising prophecy. You said, "Is that still happened today? Yes. Prophecy is still in effect today. And it may not be foretelling in the sense of new revelation coming from God, but it certainly is in regards to foretelling or proclaiming the truth of what God's already said. You say, well, how does that happen today? Listen, let me tell you exactly how that happens. Anytime that someone gets up and teaches the truth of God's word and you determine they're rightly dividing the word of truth. But at the end of the day, you say, I think it's true, but I don't like it. And I don't want to do that. You know what you're doing? You're, you're, You're doing exactly what verse 20 tells you not to do. Anytime that we say, I know what the Bible says, but you're doing exactly what verse 20 says don't do. Don't despise prophecies when someone's proclaiming the truth. In God's Word, don't quit listening. He said, Well, I don't, I don't know if it's true. And listen, what's he saying in verse 21? He says, Test all things. Test all things. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Determine whether or not they're handling accurately the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. But once that's determined, what's he say in verse 21? Hold fast to what is good. You know what hold fast means in the original language? It means embrace it. And there are some things that I don't like that the, the Scriptures teach because it convicts. But once I determine if it's true, you know what I need to do? Hold fast. Embrace it. Because the Bible is profitable for all things pertaining to life and godliness, is what the Scripture says. Here's the last one. Don't quit hating sin. Don't quit hating sin. Verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. You know what abstain means? Only one of seven times it's used in the New Testament. Abstain means to hold oneself away from, to completely remove self, person from someone. And so this idea that that all things in moderation, even sin, abstain. The maturing Christian never says, how close can I get to the line? And still be cool with God. You know what the maturing Christian says? How close can I get to Jesus? How holy can I be? Don't quit hating sin. And I remember several years ago, in this you know kind of a movement. Like don't, don't preach on sin. You know, don't, don't preach on sin because nobody will come and listen. You know why I preach against sin? Let me tell you why. Because I've sat too many times in my office and tried to help people pick up the pieces of the damage that sin has done in their lives. And so don't say you love people and, and that's why you don't preach against sin. Listen, if you love people, send a warning because it's a lot easier to fix it before it happens than pick up the pieces after life's been destroyed. He says, abstain from it. Don't quit hating sin. Love what God loves and hate what God hates. You says, oh, that, that sounds so legalistic. You know what legalism is? It's creating standards that Scripture does not. You know what holiness is? It's taking seriously the things that Scripture actually says. And one of those things he says, listen, don't quit it. Abstain from it. And anytime you have to ask the question, is this okay? You've already given yourself the answer. And a wise person once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I want to close out our series well, an excerpt that I came across this week, I can't believe I've never seen this before. From the diary, the real diary of John Wesley, the great, great evangelist, great preacher. And under the banner of Don't Quit, here's what John Wesley's diary said. Sunday a.m., May the fifth, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. I've had a couple of those. Sunday PM, May the fifth, preached in St. John's. Deacons said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m. May the 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday a.m. May the 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. He couldn't remember the name. Deacons called a special meeting and voted. I cannot return. Sunday p.m. May the 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m. May the 26th, preached in a meadow. Chased out of a meadow as a bull was turned loose on a service. Never had that. Sunday AM, June the 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday PM, June the 2nd, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came to hear the Word of God. Don't quit. You never know when 10,000 people may need to show up and hear about the God who sustains you when you didn't have the strength to go ahead. Don't quit. Don't quit because the truth of Philippians 1-6 that being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Don't quit. Don't quit because the only step you have to take is the next one forward. Don't quit. Would you bow your head?